At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. All music you hear in this episode of the American Muse podcast is supplied exclusively by Naxos Records. To hear and purchase full works, please go to naxos.com. Welcome to American Muse Podcast, where we explore hidden secrets in the landscape of 19th and 20th century American orchestral music. Your host is Dr. Grant Gilman, conductor, violinist, and author based in Atlanta, Georgia. In each episode, Grant unearths a fresh orchestral work by an American composer you may not even know. By the end, we hope you are a new fan of the composer and their music. Now, your host, Maestro Grant Gilman. Today's subject on American Muse podcast, Walter Piston, his symphony number two, and the nudist parties that he would go to with his wife. Yeah. Walter Piston, born in 1894 in Rockland, Maine, and eventually the family moved to Boston. Early on, Piston considered becoming an artist instead of a musician. He actually finished his degree in painting at the Massachusetts Normal Art School. He spoke of the transition, quote, I went to art school and earned money on the side playing the violin and the piano. I kept getting more and more interested in music, and by the end of the senior year, I was entirely devoted to it. But by then, I was so near to graduation, I decided to finish up school and I got my diploma as a painter. Since the Pistons didn't have a piano around until they moved to Boston, Walter picked up the violin and reportedly practiced so much his mother complained. That is absolutely not something that would have happened in my house growing up. Quite the opposite. One quote of Piston is just funny on its own, but also shows his continuous curiosity. Before he began his studies at Harvard he seems to have wanted to get ahead of the draft, entering the Navy band at MIT. He explained, quote, When the war came, the First World War, that is, and it became obvious that everybody had to go into the service, I wanted to go in as a musician. I couldn't play any band instrument, but I knew instruments and I knew that the saxophone was very easy. No, but seriously. Oh, but he wasn't done. So I bought a saxophone and stopped by at the public library to get an instruction book 
I learned enough to play by ear. In a very short time, I was called and I tried out for the band. I didn't pretend to read the part, but just played notes that went with the harmony, and I was accepted. <laughs> so that's it. <laughs> Not only in his own version of the story, anyway, did he prove that, quote, saxophone was very easy. Really? That was the standard of getting into the Navy band at MIT in the early 20th century. <laughs> no need to actually read the music. Just play something that sounds like music based on what they put in front of you. Were I a comedian, I'm sure that whole thing would be ripe for material. Piston married Catherine Nason, who kept her maiden name. She was an artist, and though it seems she rarely exhibited her work, she was very involved in the advocacy for her medium. The couple had no interest in and never had children. Instead, they tended gardens and raised dogs and cats. In fact, Piston actually once confessed, some of my best ideas come to me while I'm spreading manure. Now, Piston and his wife seemed to be of the bohemian sort. Passionate about art and music, preferring life, exploration to outright money and security. They were part of a free-living group of people that lived in an unurbanized area of Belmont, Maine, called The Hill. They got drunk often, discussed visual art, and even regularly held nude sketching parties. Since mostly you will only find pictures of the senior Mr. Piston, this is an unfortunate image to have. But I digress. Though it may seem a youthful time, this was Piston's way of life while he did a great deal of his most serious composing. While teaching at Harvard, Piston maintained quite a furtive compositional pace. In all, he wrote nearly 80 works that ran the gamut of the art music medium. If you've ever had life kick you in the teeth, you understand the Einstein quote, The more I learn the more I realize how much I don't know. In a way, Walter Piston had this figured out for himself early on when he reluctantly decided he was going to be a composer. Admitting to a reunion of the Harvard class of 1924, quote, After graduation, I spent two years in Paris. I discovered then that I would probably become a composer. Now, it is not from choice that one becomes a composer, but rather it seems one does it in spite of everything, even against one's better judgment. But writing long-haired music is not a way to make a living. Concurrent with teaching and composing, he wrote four academic texts that are still discussed and argued about to this day. Principles of Harmonic Analysis, Harmony, Counterpoint, and Orchestration. Not very creative with the titles, but very clear and to the point. The fact that Piston developed, published, and continuously edited his academic texts would suggest that he is by and large of an analytical mindset. However, even in those texts, he offers warnings and nuggets of wisdom along the way, cautioning against taking theoretical study too far. In Counterpoint, Piston spends the first chapter discussing melodic curve, instructing that the outline of a melody may be perceived by simply looking at the music. 
and that the word curve is useful to suggest the essential quality of continuity. Then, after giving many examples and explaining his methodology, Piston makes sure to point out, it is important to see that in the process of analysis and simplification, we do not destroy or lose sight of those details of a melody, which are the essence of its individuality and expressive quality. This statement is telling of his own philosophy on composition itself. Putting it succinctly from the preface to Harmony, Music theory tells not how music will be written in the future, but how music has been written in the past. So, as much as Piston wrote about theory, about theories about theory, and edited the books he wrote about those theories on his own theory, he held the perspective that composition is an organic event, not to follow a prescribed path. This concept absolutely plays out in his work, as we will see with his Symphony No. 2. Musicologist and biographer Howard Pollock does a great job of getting to the core of Piston's compositional individuality. In his book, Walter Piston and His Music, Pollock says, One steady and important aspect of Piston's music is his ability to give an advanced 20th century idiom the sort of motion and direction one finds in 18th and 19th century classics. And this he does by asserting such principles as pulse, melodic curve, harmonic rhythm, tonal design, and symmetrical form. In fact, all the musical elements, including dynamics and color, are responsive to form and movement. An interesting thing Piston said himself about what it is like to compose a piece gives us a bit of insight into his own thinking. Quote, I used to tell my students, as soon as you put down one note, you've changed the conditions, and then you have to consider the others in relation to this, whereas before you put it down, you're free. On the other hand, you've got to be ready to throw that away, and that takes courage. I'm sure this mirrors the writing process quite closely. His Symphony No. 2, written in 1943, was premiered by the National Symphony Orchestra in 1944. Obviously, the timing of completion and premiere can't be separated from World War II. Whether or not Piston intended it, this second symphony draws American Patriotic Association. Personally, I am not in agreement that the external factors affecting the composer, him or herself, will by default manifest itself literally in the music. Though a few musician quotes from early performances show a strong emotional response. Hans Kindler, who conducted the premiere, said, The symphony is without even the shadow of a doubt one of the half-dozen great works written during the last ten years. It sings forever in my heart and in my consciousness and does not want to leave me. Even Eric Leinsdorf wrote, The performance of your symphony, which took place last night, was, to me personally, the most gratifying experience with any score that has seen daylight within the last 10 or 15 years. Well, we have to hear some of it after reviews like that. So, Piston's Symphony No. 2 is written in three movements, Moderato, Adagio, Allegro. Three movement symphonies are a less used format. Usually four movements is standard, as established by Haydn and Mozart, but it was not uncommon, and knowing Piston's knowledge of form, 
we can confidently assume he had strong reasoning to go this route. Even the movements themselves are basically in sonata form, though the sound and inflection is undeniably Pistonian. The excerpts you will hear are from a 2003 recording of the Seattle Symphony conducted by Gerard Schwartz. In the first movement, Moderato, the opening theme is a serious, lyrical line unfolding from the very beginning, presented at first in unison with little accompaniment. second theme is a dramatic contrast to the first, playful, off-kilter, almost tongue-in-cheek. In the recap, Piston brings this theme back in a bigger, more filled out capacity, adding brass and more percussion to boost the moment. However, to close the movement, this sort of fanfare becomes a calm brass chorale ending just with the same seriousness as he began. Adagio movement, on the other hand, has a completely different feeling, like home, down to earth. After a brief introduction to set the soft texture, syncopated pulses in the strings accompany a gorgeous clarinet solo, crafted and presented with simple delicacy.
throughout this movement, even as it expands to climaxes and contracts back from them. The tenor of sensuousness never gives way. Even as the sound slowly builds to the ultimate moment of tension, the feeling is of complete organic overflow. Incidentally, it was this second movement that Leonard Bernstein conducted as a tribute to Piston upon his death. The final movement, Allegro, begins with a pop, racing energy, and a characteristic Piston horn call, followed by a semi-fugue, all setting the stage for a quick, intense closing. same material is repeated, it is appropriately right at the height of excitement as Piston barrels into the recap. To close out the whole of the symphony, Piston pushes forward the motion while letting out all the energy. He even pulls back the tempo for one brief moment and then, like a slingshot, shoots off to the rousing finish.
honestly, most of the orchestral pieces in Piston's portfolio deserve to be heard, analyzed, enjoyed, most notably including his eight numbered symphonies, the ballet, the incredible flutist, three New England sketches, uh, and serenata for orchestra. Carrying on his legacy, not only will his theory texts continue to be discussed for many decades to come, after teaching at Harvard for 34 years, his long list of students includes some recognizable names, such as Samuel Adler, Leroy Anderson, Arthur Berger, Leonard Bernstein, Elliot Carter, and Conlon Nancaro. Piston's music is moving and on the edge of what came to be a new sound in American music. Even now, his pieces have a distinctiveness of both depth and quality. As we continue to perform and hear his music, we will come to know more of the character of this great composer. If you like what you have heard and want to support the advocacy of American orchestral music, please consider signing up to donate regularly at patreon.com for our continued production of this podcast. Also, subscribe for updates wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.